Greetings from Longtime No See the Podcast. Every week we'll be inviting two blindfolded comedians to answer a series of questions about their careers, lives, and opinions. Now, let's remove those blindfolds and start the show. Hi! What would your opening line with your celebrity crush be? Loved you in Harry Potter. <laughs> Worst date you've been on. A man bit my neck mole off once. You did what? A man bit my neck mole off. Oh my god, Jack almost fell off his chair. Be sure to follow and subscribe to the podcast. Hey pod people, Engineer Adam here, jumping in for a quick second to let you know about the brand new all-in-one platform for all of you creative podcasters out there. Anchor makes it easier than ever to make a podcast. It's free to use and has all the creation tools you need to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Plus, Anchor will get your podcast set up on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever podcasts are found. Even better, Anchor helps you connect with sponsors, even if you're just starting out. It's the perfect choice for podcasters, so make sure to check it out. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. That's A-N-C-H-O-R dot F-M. Back to the show. Consequence Podcast Network. Hello, everybody. Uh, welcome to. I saw that I wouldn't do that. Hello, everybody. Welcome to this must be the gig. I'm your host, Leo Phillips. Thank you so much for tuning in. I couldn't be happier to have you in my head, imaginary pod people. The point of this podcast is really to talk about why people love live music and what it does to them, and how their lives have changed. And I think that that's something that we're all curious about. Um, I'm so excited. This is our very, very first episode. And if you hear some gremlin sounds, that is Engineer Adam being a gremlin. (laughs) Hello. Classic gremlin noise. Hello. Hi. Hi. Hello. <laughs> Hello, everybody. Uh, without him, I would be lost, and this wouldn't happen. This must be the gig. If you're wondering why the heck we called it that, uh, this must be the place is one of my favorite Talking head songs. It speaks about home, and it speaks about the heart, and all I need in this world is home and heart. And it just made sense, because sometimes you're standing at that gig, and you're feeling unbelievably moved, and you go, yeah, this must be the gig. So I kind of felt like it just fit. Um, If you disagree, don't tell me. (laughs) (laughs) So obviously, I would love to know from you all what you have experienced in the past and what kind of festivals and live music you've seen that's really changed your life, whether that's for the good or the bad, I want to know all those saucy stories. Um, Leave me a message on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, wherever you talk to your friends and see their babies. TMBTG pod. (laughs) This must be the gig pod. TMBTG pod. I am so excited to introduce my first guest, which I am borderline obsessed with. Her name is Shirley Manson from Garbage. I 
don't know how she is a real human. She's got this demented joy about her that you, th- there's nothing you can do but be com- completely sucked in and enthralled. She is uh, so intelligent and so powerful. And there is something about speaking to somebody who has had an experience that spans decades um, where you can't, there's nothing, you can't not learn from her. She had so many beautiful stories and really harrowing stories as well about her experiences over the years. And she lets us in, you know, to losing her voice at Roskilde Festival in Denmark. And she talks about, you know, the experience of performing in the 90s versus now. It just was very, very moving. They, the Garbage was a seminal kind of glossy alt-rock band. And I know for, I speak for a lot of people out there, but that, that, was, a, that was a band that changed a lot of people's lives and soundtracked a lot of amazing movies too. And they just have this really emotional sincerity. Speaking to Shirley over the past few years, I've spoken to her a few times, and also Butch, who, Butch Vig, who is also just so fantastic and so intelligent and passionate about production. And I just think she's a legend for a reason. Uh, And you will figure that out as well by listening to her speak. And if you don't, you have no heart. And if you have no heart, I say go and stick your finger into a power outlet. But no, I, I really think you will love this conversation as much as I did. And thank you so, 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 so much again for tuning in. And uh, let me get to know you. Like, introduce yourself. I'm really not scary. <laughs> yeah, I hope you enjoy this episode. And just sit tight. Grab a cup of tea. Or spike that tea if you feel like feeling raunchy. (laughs) Um, Enjoy. Bye. Hi, Lior. It's Shirley Manson calling. Hi, Shirley. How are you? Hi. I'm good. How are you doing? I'm good. Thank you for calling. And when was it? I think we spoke like two years ago. I don't know. I feel like I speak to you every few years, which is. Yeah, I was trying to remember. I think you spoke to me. You're right. Two years ago, because I think we were talking about the anniversary of the first record. Mm. I could be wrong. No, you're totally right. Little Birds, maybe. Yeah, I don't know. No, you're right. Who knows? But I like it right, because okay. I get to have these placeholders because my memory is like <laughs> a memory of like a 97-year-old man. So it's like I get to have <laughs> these placeholders where I go, oh, okay, I remember I was living here. I was doing that. So, and you're back in, are you in LA now? I am in Los Angeles and I'm about to head off to my Scottish homeland. So uh, this is, yeah, you caught me just before I went off on holiday. So it's so great. Oh, wonderful. So where are you going back home to where you grew up? I am going back home to where I grew up. Oh, wow. I'm going to smell the salty sea air (laughs) and uh, see my old dad and, you know, 
just reconnect. Mm. I mean, there's definitely something like ionized, you know, like water is ionizing. Like there's definitely something mm. very cleansing about that all. And obviously going home, I can imagine from being, you know, living in LA and going home, that gives you a nice little break and perspective, you know? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I love living in LA, but you're right. You go back to a small island, which is the complete opposite of a vast desert. And mm. you and it's a, just an entirely difficult sort of political, socioeconomic background, you know. So mm. it is. I, I feel like it's a real privilege, yeah. And then how long are you going back for? Is this like, do you Not get a lot enough. of holiday? Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> just a couple of weeks. Yeah, okay. just a couple of weeks, unfortunately. And then I know that by the time this comes out, this chat comes out, that you would have announced all your different dates that with mm-hmm. along with the reissue um, of version 2.0, which is really, really exciting. Yeah, I mean, we just basically had such a great time for really selfish personal reasons on the anniversary of our first record that we decided at the end of that tour that we were going to do the same thing for version 2.0, which had been an equally as successful record for us. It was a big record for us. And um, we just thought that it would be a great opportunity to play all those songs um, that were big hits all over the world for us um, mm. w- sort of in one sort of collective um, place a lot if not all of the b-sides as well in one concert we just thought it would be a good challenge for us and really rewarding not just for the fans but for us as a band you know so I mean this will be the end of our anniversary celebrations we're not going to keep doing it for each album <laughs> but um, we, we for some for some inexplicable reason we just you know, version 2.0 was such a watershed for us in a way and also still remains, for me at least, the sort of quintessential garbage record. So mm-hmm. it just felt right that we should celebrate that, what felt like a ridiculous achievement, you know, mm. <laughs> and, no, and at the time and and still does. You know, it's just, it, it was mad. It was a mad moment in our lives and magical. And um, so, yeah. That was, that's just sort of the idea behind it. We're, we're not actually playing that many shows. We're playing a, sort of a couple of weeks in Europe and a couple of mm. weeks in the States. And I think overall we're play, maybe playing six weeks or so, hoping to get down to South America too. So mm. we shall see. How challenging is it to remember yourself at that time? Do you look back at much or do you just remember that feeling of how it was when it came out and then run with that what do you what is what happens to the insides the squishy insides when all of this you know reflection and looking back when that happens <laughs> well luckily for us it's been 20 years you know since version 2.0 was released which is a is both a ridiculously long time and also it feels like a bizarrely short time too um mm. it's a weird you know sort of conundrum um, like anybody's life, you know, you have memories of things that happened so long ago and they're bright and they're sharp and then you can't remember what you had for dinner last night. You know, I mean, it's <laughs> it's peculiar. So, um, yeah. and, and obviously that kind of success that version 2.0, you know, enjoyed, it capitalised on the ridiculous success we had of our debut record, which, mm. which in itself was an extraordinary, you know, experience. But then to really solidify the band's identity and and our sound on the world was a real felt like a real triumph, you know. Mm. So I've had a long time to sit and process what happened to me back then. Mm. And 
So I have a lot of um, conflicting emotions about it. I, uh, we we were worked to the ground. Mm. We were exhausted, but we were also elated, yeah? Mm. So, uh, and it was the first time really that we got to go all over the globe, literally play for practically every country that exists. Mm. And people knew who we were and they knew our songs and they wanted to come to the shows. And, you know, we even made it to South Africa. We went to, yeah. you know, Japan. We went to Iceland. We went everywhere. And so, it was just this wonderful magic carpet ride. Mm. And obviously touring, you had toured before that, but did you, had you traveled much prior to that tour or was that really the first time that you got to see some of those countries, you know, in that capacity as a performer? Well, you know, being European, it was all, it's always been a little easier for us as Europeans to, to travel to, mm. in inverted commas, foreign lands and see very different lifestyles. But mm. be, that being said, I'd only ever been to, you know, basically mainland Europe, you know, so I hadn't been much further afield than that. So, yeah, definitely when our first record came out, our debut hit uh, was the first time that, and the case for the whole band was the first time we ever got to travel far afield and really see the world for what it was and start to wrap our heads around it and try and start to comprehend just how mm. massive the globe is and yet how how alike we are as people despite you know these incredibly different places we all emerge from mm. and it's so interesting how you get to especially when you're younger and you're starting out you're still essentially like a fan on the inside you know, so you're getting to perform to these fans that you feel akin toward still, but then you're suddenly up on this pedestal, you know, giving them everything you have. Is there any, was there any, especially back then, was there any disconnect? Like, did you just naturally get straight into it? Or was there kind of an apprehension toward like how you would be perceived as a performer, as the lead singer, the, you know, the front of a band? No, I struggled enormously with that, to be honest. Yeah, um, wow. Uh, for, for a lot of different reasons. I mean, mm. I come from a very egalitarian country. You know, Scotland is very sort of, you know, it's built on clans. So mm -hmm. we have a very sort of egalitarian outlook on how our culture should run. Mm. And so for me then to find myself in somewhat, and I use this term loosely, but in an elevated position where people knew who I was, people were familiar with my face. I felt both undeserving of their love and I was unable to absorb the love because I felt that I hadn't earned that either. Mm. So it was, it was complicated. 20 years later, I realized that actually what is happening in that situation is really simple. The band is in service of the fans. And once you figure that out, it's really easy. You're like, oh, I'm here to serve them mm. and to to connect them to their own experience through through our music, you know. And and now I find it really easy to deal with the attention, um, and and I can absorb love from fans and feel it's just sort of payback for whatever service we have performed for them and their lives, you know. Because you mm. over the years I've been so blown away by some of the testimonies we've you know um witnessed from some of our fans whether that's you know oral or or written letter or post on our social media platforms it's extraordinary the mm -hmm. role music plays in people's lives 
Mm. And um, yeah, uh, it, it's the greatest privilege of my life that, that just to have even come this far, you know, it's just been a, mm. a marvelous endeavor. And I love that you have that ability to see where you stand within the equation because I feel so often the line is definitely blurred because artists get, I think the operative word was service, because artists get put on this pedestal and suddenly they are needed in a certain way. And I definitely think that your fans are so respectful of you and your band and your music and they have always seen who you are and I think that that's a really important thing in terms of longevity and just kind of feeling comfy within your own art form because I can't even imagine what bands go through when say for example they you know are faced with a crowd who are disrespectful or you know they just that people just don't get them and the fact that you are Obviously, you are very humble enough to know I am giving this to the to them, you know, and I don't expect anything back. But I do feel I'm sure that there are artists out there that really do expect a lot. Well, I think there's two, there's a couple of things that happen. Mm. One is that some artists love a power trip, like oh, they really, yeah. really get off on being in adverted commas powerful and inverted commas, elevated, and they never, ever have the clarity to understand, really, that it's always the people who have the power. It's never the idol. Mm. And, mm. you know, unfortunately, that, that's what really drives a lot of, of artists to the, the cusp or mm. the, the eye of, of insanity. You know, they just lose all um, sense of where they began and, and what really the, 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 they are there to, to provide. But the other thing that, of course, happens is you get incredibly fragile artists mm. who just cannot cannot find their way through the jungle because it, it, it's a massive mindfuck. Mm. To become successful and to become famous is without a doubt a massive mindfuck and, a, and a la- landmines aplenty, you know, so... It takes a very singular person to manage to navigate that and hold on to your own identity. That's the problem is people just lose, they lose where they came from and who mm. they were. I remember I spoke to Alice Cooper. I know this is a weird reference, but a, long, a I while love Alice ago. Cooper. I also do. And the best part of it was he was like, hey, Leo, it's Alice. And I was like waiting for him to be the certain person. And he was talking about his wife church, everything. And he kept it very, he was speaking about Alice in the third person. So he knew exactly because he's not that person on stage. He's not lost in that character. He's aware that it's a character, but for people like you, who you're singing from your gut, you're singing about this like creative, you know, world and this creative carnival that's inside your head so I can imagine it's very difficult not getting caught up in that if you don't have the preconceived idea of becoming that extra, you know, character. Like, you, that's not your plan. You don't get up stay, on stage and you are a different person. I'm sure that you're elevated and everything is, you know, amplified, but you still feel like the same person. Or do you feel like totally different and separate from that person who's on stage? 
Well, first of all, I have to say that to lose yourself in the role of a rock star or a pop star or mm. any kind of cultural star, to lose yourself and buy and drink the Kool-Aid, so to speak, is so much easier. And that's why I think a lot of people do it. You know, mm. that's why they start to enjoy having bodyguards. That's why they enjoy having distance from the fans. That's why they enjoy having distance from their old past lives because it just becomes easier for them, I think. Mm. Um, they don't have to deal with peer jealousy. They don't have to deal with a difficult husband or a wife or a partner of any sort. They can just like blast through life drinking the Kool-Aid and being drunk on the Kool-Aid and, and, and it's all about them and it's all about success and money and, and, and so on and so forth. Mm. Mm. That's really easy to do, I think. So it is very difficult to try and marry the duality of a normal human being and then doing something that basically for one brief night or, or you know, a, an array of nights mm-hmm. where you are... Um, transformed into some kind of cultural deity or, or you know, colourful, modern, um, you know, icon, I guess, for lack of a better word. Mm-hmm. So that to try and marry that duality is really a challenge. And um, but when I'm on stage, I am. I'm basically augmented reality. I think that's probably the way I would. That's I how love I would that. Put it. Yeah. <laughs> is so, she there? Where is she? Why is she levitating? Yeah. Yeah. No. <laughs> yeah that, that's how I would describe it. But how did you not drink the Kool Aid? Because you were at the point, especially from being from starting out the way that you did, you were chosen. You know, you were asked to do it. It wasn't like, I know that it was in your blood, but it, you came upon it in a different way. So how, what did you do when you were doing those back-to-back touring? We chatted about version 2.0 earlier. You were on that tour. How did you keep, I don't want to use the word grounded because I feel like there needs to be a certain level of excitement still. If, you know, you you are a, you're a performing crazy punk rock star but how did you keep yourself you know in tune with your truth again there's multitudes multi sort of sort of multiple reasons why I didn't lose my fucking mind (laughs) (laughs) one was what I referred to earlier about coming from a country that prides itself on a sort of egalitarian uh, perspective like that in general and these are sweeping general generalizations but you know, Scottish right. people believe in the equality of, of people, of others. Mm. So I definitely came at my career that with that approach. Like, even though extraordinary things are happening to me, I am still an ordinary person. And I uh, that was very clear. And that has been in my mind since I was raised as, you know, from being a tiny little person. My parents raised me that way. And, you know, I, beyond that, I, I can see no other reason why I think that way. It's just that's how I was reared and that's what I believe in. So mm-hmm. at no point did I ever think I was extraordinary just because extraordinary things were happening in my life. I was really able to make that that distinction. Um, Secondly, because I was chosen and I hadn't engineered it myself in my own sick, twisted mind, I didn't believe I deserved it. Mm. And thirdly, I am a really passionate person who's also pretty suspicious of people 
Like I don't take right. people in very yes. easily, and I don't. When people are licking my ass, yeah. I'm thinking. I'm in my head thinking, "Fuck, Fuck. you! <laughs> what is it that you really want? What do from you me? want? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Why are you so, licking, and what do you need? <laughs> yeah. Why are you busy licking me right now? That's <laughs> not right. <laughs> and you know, I again, I notice a lot of people around me in similar positions love being licked. Mm. I notice it. I watch it happen. Mm. They love the feeling of being licked. Well, mm. I it gives me the heebie-jeebies. Yeah, the, 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 we call them the frills. The, the it like yeah, totally, and it makes your hair stand up on your arm. Yeah, but I mean that's yeah, but, that's incredible that you harness that almost like suspicion because you are clearly intuitive as well. You know, it's very. I think people who don't see that, I don't feel necessarily sorry for them because it's quite nice to be naive. But when you know that people are talking to you in a certain way, in a certain manner, you can't even describe it. It's just a guttural, like, gurgle. And it's like, nope, I don't want to be led that way. (laughs) You know, why is this person asking me and messaging me on every platform and trying to be kind when they were never kind? I totally, but you probably come across people like that. We, We were talking in the past now, but I'm sure you still come across people like that. Oh, now more than ever, you know, to be honest. But mm-hmm. um, I am a bit of a witch. I mean, I think <laughs> to be an intelligent, successful woman in the world, and this is, again, a sweeping generalization, mm-hmm. but you basically have to be a bit of a of a intuitive witch. Otherwise, mm-hmm. you won't survive. Mm-hmm. And I use the term witch with great respect and pride because I love being called a witch. I think mm-hmm. witch is the what, arguably the greatest compliment anyone could ever give another woman. Mm-hmm. Um and because what that speaks of is, of course, a woman who it has powers, <laughs> you know, of some sort. Absolutely. And, uh, yeah, and um, are feared. And, and I think the more people fear women, the better. Mm. I don't think people are fearful enough of women. Um, and therein lies a whole other conversation. But sticking to, to the, the topic we're currently on, mm. I have had to rely on my intuition to to get me out of so much trouble from when I was a young teenager, you know, and I think that speaks to probably most women's experience in the world. Mm. I mean, the idea of a woman in general, that whole idea is getting just totally knocked down. And, you know, that's it's the rebirth at the moment. So I... Which I been... think is actually, by the way, beautiful. Like, me I am too. so grateful. Absolutely. I want to see the genders getting destroyed. Mm-hmm. The binary system is dead. Mm. What we have been taught is bogus. There are more than two or three sexes out there, and the faster we all come to that the, to those terms, it's going to be a relief for the traditional binary system of men and women. We're all going to be relieved of certain duties and and expectations, and I, for mm. one, applaud that, and I can't wait to see it completely, you know, ground to dust. Absolutely, and the, that whole. <laughs> but I agree that dust hexing. I mean, it's happening, and the witches are out. But I totally agree with you in terms of how especially there's this whole paradigm there's this entire duality especially with how women have been viewed as performers as well because essentially you were at the front of a certain genre of of music 
And so people probably had these preconceived ideas of how you should act and you should wear certain clothing, you should behave in a certain way. And you broke that down very long ago. So I can't even imagine how many people were really, really frightened of you back in the day. And like, you know, because they couldn't control you. I wonder how people are affected now, how young women and non-binary artists are affected by other people's opinions, wanting to conform. Well, you know, luckily for me, when I emerged and I was a relatively young artist, there was no social media platforms. So mm. when I was non-conforming and I was incredibly rebellious, there was nobody around really to take note or, or criticize or, or observe. I was free to do whatever I wanted, express myself in any which way I chose, dress in any, you know, fashion I, 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 you know, decided upon. And, and that was a great freedom that generations to come have not enjoyed. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they are under a microscope and, and they're all very, very aware of that, as they should be, I hasten to add. Um, but so as a result, they're, they're working at, you know, at a disadvantage in some ways, you know, um, that, that, you know, against, against a whole slew of, of difficulties that we never had to, to navigate. So I think we are seeing more and more conformity. And when we do see rebelliousness, it feels like it's being, it's being done for the benefit of the camera, so to speak. It's being done for the eye of the social media viewer. And mm. so it doesn't, it doesn't feel that exciting. And mm. so, you know, I think we are going to see a new paradigm as, as, as the years continue, as, as the human brain evolves and deals with the pressures that, that hum, human beings are under from constant surveillance, basically. Mm. Um, but... And I know that there's non-conforming musicians out there. I mean, I've seen plenty of it, you know, just going to gigs here in L.A. or in Scotland or, you know, to Mexico. And, you know, you hear about all these incredible artists. They're all there. Mm. But it's unfortunately just becoming more and more difficult to really make your mark on culture the way, you know, when, when we emerged in the 90s, it was just a handful of us. That got covered by a handful of publications that everybody bought and read, mm-hmm. and now that's not the case. Everything is really fractionalized, and you know nobody's looking at the same newspapers, the same magazines, the same TV shows, and the same movies anymore. That's a that's a thing of the past. Mm-hmm. So how do you make a kind of cultural mark the way we all did? the way the generations before, like Patti Smith and Chrissy Hines and Debbie Harry and all that, how, you know, how they managed to imprint themselves on culture, how a, a young artist does that now without conforming. Mm. I, I'm really at a loss to know how they do that. Because the pop stars yeah. can do it because they can reach, you know, massive audiences and mm. they themselves can, can really make a cultural impact. But those who are non-conformist they really have an uphill struggle and, and certainly in, I, I can't see that changing anytime 
in the immediate future, but I'm sure they're going to find a way. Like I said, it's just a matter of evolution, isn't it? <laughs> no, but it's true. And, and especially in yes. this disposable culture, you can't... That's what I love about concerts and live performance and festivals. There's no way to really edit yourself. Like people can't... No, you can't fake it. You can't fake it. You, if you fall on that stage, you fall on that stage. Like people will hear everything. If you forget your lines, the fans singing them back to you will be be suddenly at a loss and confused and you know be like oh hang on do I love this band as much as I thought I did and there's so many beautiful terrible accidents that can happen live that I feel is still the last kind of I don't I don't know what word I want to use here but it's still the last hope that we have in terms of keeping it authentic um especially considering, as you mentioned, there's these big pop stars and they can tackle and be in front of the audience that they want to be. But then the smaller artists, you know, they often, there's this like conflation of socially ostracized and, you know, LGBTQ or, or you know, uncommon artists being seen as kind of miserable in comparison to all these shiny new pop stars. <laughs> and I feel like, you know, that's extremely telling because the ones that are getting the attention, the smaller acts that are a little bit, you know, weird, um, they're getting the right attention that will last longer, I think. Obviously, album sales, all those good things. I wish that that came as well. But they're getting the type of loyalty that artists like you had and have, you know, from so many years of doing this. Um because they're not edited and they're not diluted and you you know I don't know if any of that makes sense but no it all makes perfect sense I mean the thing that I feel the most sort of optimistic about currently is I feel like I've been banging on about what you've just banged on about now for t almost for you know about a decade let's yeah. just say a decade because okay. I feel that's when pop music really became dominant and mm. basically pushed any other kind of genre out of the equation mm. so I've felt very despondent for about a decade and over the last sort of 18 months I've started to feel really excited again because I really notice a real change in the culture towards more alternative non-conformist expression and that mm. excites me mm. because now I think even when I hear pop music on the radio at, like over the last sort of couple of months it feels so out of step with the culture it feels so wrong mm. and so non-reflective of how everyone is feeling right now and how you know if you look at America alone let, mm. let's forget about the rest of the world but let's just Gosh. focus on North America for a random example to make mm. it easier you know you've got children out on the street protesting the government now in my lifetime I have never known anything like that to mm. me that speaks of something that I don't even fully understand yet all I know is that is a huge shift and it's exciting even if you agree with it or not it's a massive change, a massive cultural movement that does not, is not being addressed by sort of happy-go-lucky, shiny pop music that talks about getting banged in the club, you know. <laughs> it's just, it's just yeah, I feel there's a, totally. I think people are now sick to the back teeth mm. of, of shiny, fun, um, 
cupcakes and now they're looking for something that can sustain them through difficulty and challenge and you know um, something with substance absolutely something Just... with substance and authenticity you mentioned that earlier totally. I think that's really important but, but don't you feel like there's so much going on that you I feel like I strive for that not only within the art that I consume but within the human beings that I surround myself with as well so I feel like that's nobody really wants to be around just the surface floating blob like you want to be around people who are not shouting but people who aren't afraid of their voice well you know I I know exactly what you're saying and I for one I'm of your school like I love to shout and argue and debate I don't take it personally I never mean the, the, the opposing opinion any harm and I don't go away feeling aggrieved once mm. we've ha we've held held uh, any form of discourse the problem is as I've gotten older and older I realize everyone isn't wired like me and people are genuinely really uncomfortable a lot of the time mm -hmm. with confrontation or they don't have the confidence to express themselves either politically or emotionally or spiritually or whatnot <laughs> yeah. and I have to as I've gotten older start to really tune into that and 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 I have I really want to learn to listen to it better, you know, because I have a loud voice and I'm confident and I, I know exactly how I, where I stand. But that doesn't mean that just because somebody isn't confident in their opinion doesn't mean that that, that uh, opinion doesn't hold water, you know. So mm -hmm. I really am trying to learn more to listen and and give people space and try not to intimidate, you know, because I love passionate argument. Yes. But I realize that um, not everyone is, is unfortunately wired like me and neither do they share the same viewpoint or life experience than me. Now, this mm -hmm. I'm I'm talking as though these are really like I'm talking as though I'm sharing profundities. But of course, it's not. It's the most simple, basic human, you know, yes, thing, absolutely. Yeah, human truth that mm -hmm. I'm speaking. But mm -hmm. it's easy to sort of scoff at how complicated our communications are as human beings and it's I think that's why we're all finding ourselves in this ridiculous mire of left versus right black mm. versus white right versus wrong I mean it's just crazy it's, it's become really so loud un yeah and unsophisticated mm. and unevolved <laughs> yeah. you know do you feel like that extends to who you are as an artist in terms of performing live do you feel like you have that right to stand up there and maybe i don't know scream a little louder and especially some of your songs that tackle you know your personal experiences do you do you feel like that extends to who you are as a performer as well well, I think I've got as much right to be up there as anybody else, yeah? Mm -hmm. And I feel like I have worked my arse off since I was 15 to get to where I am, you know? So I don't Absolutely. feel like I have to give up my... I don't feel I have to give up my seat to anybody. Mm -hmm. I feel like, you know what? I fucking seat, sit on this seat because I built this seat. <laughs> and this seat is mine. But I'm perfectly willing to share the stage if you bring your... If you shuffle your little seat along and sit down beside me, you know? Mm -hmm. But I'm not giving up my seat. Um, so, yeah, I never go out there and go, oh, I should really give it to somebody more talented. I used to when I was young, but I don't anymore. Mm. But I also feel a little diffident, you know, because I know, like, I'm 51, I'm going to be 52 in August. And I'm like, wow. I sort of feel as though I feel, I feel victorious that I have survived this long. <laughs> and I feel that, again, I can be of service to women 
so many women who feel that once they're over 30, they completely lose their agency. Mm. And I I understand. I'm in a position to say, no, actually, ladies, (laughs) (laughs) we don't lose our agency. In point of fact, we get more, you know, uh, determined, more powerful, more rebellious um, if we so choose. And Mm. I, I, I sort of feel like, in a way that I am continuing to grow as a as a musician, I'm continuing to learn, and that's exciting to me. Mm, and I feel like pretty. that. Mm. I feel like in a way that has there's been very little exploration of women's talents beyond the age of 35. Because historically speaking, we've all just folded in our wings and slunk off into the wings, you know, mm-hmm. of the theatre mm-hmm. and just disappeared. Mm-hmm. So I feel like, oh, I have a playground right now as a 51-year-old that the, that the younger artists don't have access to. I'm in this incredibly privileged situation where I can really explore what it means to be 51. And there's not many people in my pool. So mm. how lucky am I? Mm. You know, that's how I feel. You know, you mentioned, Chrissy earlier, you've, got, you've had this kind of strong social orbit of powerful artists and humans around you. You know, you... I know that you were a massive and I'm sure still are a massive fan of Susie Sue at, you know, a very early age. I think we chatted about it last time we spoke and you also wrote the forward to a biography and then, you know, you've, and you inducted Blondie into the rock and roll hall of fame. And I just feel like it's, it's important to acknowledge where you're at in terms of, of course, your age, but also where you're at in terms of how much you've grown in your field you know, the fact that you say, I deserve to be here, it's sad to say, but you shouldn't ever need to say that, you know, like everyone in that era, in your era and before you and now it's, it's hard work. And I feel like you exude that all the time, but it just seems like you naturally navigate toward other artists that feel the same way that you do. It's weird. Cause I feel like any time a woman is non-conforming she's choosing a difficult she's choosing the difficult path she's choosing the path that has not yet been scythed you know the grasses have not yet been scythed and and her path is not clear she's definitely choosing a more difficult route by being non-conforming not exploiting her body and her sexuality to a, a ridiculous degree so yes you know you know, I and all the other women around me who who have not chosen the easiest path, we're, we're all part of a quilt. I mean, it sounds like such a boring cliche, but it's true. And I was very lucky earlier, very early on in my career, to have met uh, some of these women that you speak of, whether it's Chrissy Hines, whether it's Debbie Harry, Patty Smith. I'm, I met them and I was always, always so conscious of the history of music, who was behind me. You know, you meet kids, some kids now, and they literally think they've reinvented the wheel. <laughs> and, you know, it's both, it's both charming, but I also worry for them. I'm thinking to myself, look, oh, you know, oh, look babe, you know, you. Peaches, <laughs> you know, you look, look behind look you, Peaches did you. this, you know, 20 years yes. ago, and, 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 and Debbie Harry did, you know, something else, you know, mm-hmm. 30 years ago, you know, you need to understand where the where work has been from. done and I totally yeah and I feel like I always appreciated and understood just how difficult it was to be a female artist mm. um 
back then, let alone speak of right now. You know, Mm -hmm. it's hard enough now, but back then, holy shit, these women were, you know, really hardcore. So do you have a favorite concert that you went to when you were super young? Like, when was the first concert? How... How available were acts coming into your hometown? Like, did you get a lot of acts touring or did you actively have to go get in a car with your mates and and watch your favorite band? No, I was pretty lucky. Almost everything came through Edinburgh in the end. Mm. Um, Anyone really that I pretty much wanted to see, I ended up in some way or form getting to witness them in the flesh. You know, I can remember walking down Princess Street, which is the main drag in Edinburgh with my mum. Yes. And Joe Strum- Strummer is walking along the street and towards no. us. Oh, my and gosh. my <sighs> fucking mum notices that I'm blushing because I'm so, like, taken by the fact that he's there in... he's The physical manifestation of Joe Strummer is in I, my hometown. He's walking towards mm. me and my mum looks at me and just as he passes by in earshot says why are you blushing you're bright red oh no. and i just remember thinking oh mom shut the fuck up mom go jump you know, down the well was... right now mom leave me alone yeah. oh. Oh. and oh then i remember gosh. also uh, like an amazing memory of like running up the Waverley Steps, which is in Edinburgh, and Bjork was running down on her way to the train station. You know, no. shit like that. It's no. like really beautiful, extraordinary glimpses of, of these incredible artists, you know, in in sort of anonymity in a funny way. It was really extraordinary. But my arguably my first musical concert was my mum. My mum was singing. And really? Wow. She, Did yeah, she, so she was yeah. in a band? Well, she was in a band, but I didn't see her sing with her band. I saw her sing in the sort of concert party that was attached to the church that we used to go to when we were kids. And mm-hmm. I heard my mum sing there for the first time with the concert party. And and my my little sister and I were just talking about this yesterday, actually. It's like we both remember sitting there and watching her appear out of blue velvet curtains. They had these thick blue velvet curtains that they used to, like, <laughs> literally... <laughs> manually turn you know somebody had a sort yeah, of like, squeaky, oh, like uh, yeah, yeah squeaky <laughs> wheel and these blue curtains opened up and there was my mum in a, in a beautiful white dress with little blue cornflowers on them and she sang on a clear day and but mm. I mean, my me and my sisters were just sort of mesmerized did that kind of give you a an idea of what you wanted to do was that in terms of not necessarily making music but performing to an audience you know I was strange little creature to be honest and (laughs) I have an argument with my family because I claim that I never wanted to be famous or be a singer or be on the stage or anything they claim otherwise they said no you always wanted to be famous you (laughs) always said you wanted to be famous and I don't remember that streak in myself at all I mean I literally have zero memory of having any desire I wanted to be a ballerina that's what I wanted to do and I was very serious about that and it's the only thing actually to be honest in my life I've ever pursued with real passion and Mm. seriousness I really desperately wanted to dance like Margot Fontaine and Mm. I injured myself when I was young and I also got too tall and that was the end of that Um, but that was really the only dream I've ever had that I can remember. Mm, mm. And I mean, Margot Fontaine, I just, the, just the name 
I don't, it just makes me, I just remember that. I mean, it's every ballerina, every ballerina just knew her and her work and it just makes you, it just kind of transports you. That's so, but you, but you were never uncomfy in public, like performing or speaking or any of that. So it came pretty naturally to you. Yeah. I mean, my dad back in the sort of 70s <laughs> I can't believe I'm saying this but my dad in the 70s used to have a little portable cassette player mm-hmm. that had a little attached microphone to it and he would record me and my sisters either playing the piano or the violin or singing or reciting poetry so yeah by a sort of decent age of about seven or eight I was kind of accustomed to performing for 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 my family and for my dad and it didn't ever really phase me, it's true. Mm. And then your first, so when you, I know that obviously some of your first experiences then performing live, you know, we've spoken before about you performing as a teenager with, you know, Edinburgh bands like the Wild Indians and Autumn. Uh, but before j- even joining like Goodbye Mr. McKenzie, what was it like then going on stage with Garbage? having been kind of plucked from your home into this world, what was it like first performing with them? Oh, God, it was very overwhelming, actually. Um, Because, yeah, I hadn't really done a lot of lead singing. You know, Mm. I'd, I'd made a record with Angel Fish, but I'd only played a handful of shows, like literally like something like six shows with Angel Fish. So I had practically zero experience as a front person um i had in all the bands that you listed whether it was autumn 1984 or the wild indians or goodbye miss mckenzie or whatnot mm. um it, that was always backing vocals you know and keyboard playing so when i got dumped in front of garbage i didn't really know what to do what to do i just knew that it was a job and i better not fail at it because if i failed at it the whole fucking ship would go down <laughs> And obviously seeing it as a job as opposed to like this thing that's going to change your world, you know, that kind of squashes it a little bit, right? So I can only like, I think that that's a much better attitude to have as opposed to maybe how people starting out now, can you imagine they probably go into their first concert thinking, God, someone's going to tweet about it. Someone's going to post a picture. Someone's going to really, you know, it must be awful. It must be awful. And at least you but, went, yeah. But I will say this. Mm-hmm. I think the standard now is so much higher. Mm-hmm. Like, I am blown away by how good kids are now because they have had the opportunity to basically study anyone they want on YouTube. Mm-hmm. And they've got all the moves down by the time they, they step out and do their first show. I mean, it's, it's kind of mind-blowing. And, you know, I want to be cynical and go, well, they don't quite have it, but they do. They actually mm. fucking do. Mm. And, well, they've uh, learned from the I, best. I mean, look at, look, at the, look at who they have to learn from. It's extraordinary. Mm. We didn't have anyone to copy. Mm. That was the sort of interesting thing, you know, like that's the difference is none of us were able to copy anybody else. Not really. We had our memories, but that's about it. But now you can basically mimic anyone that you are in awe of. And as a result, you know, I think the standard of singing is higher. The standard of performing is higher. I mean, you know, when young bands were starting out in Scotland in the the sort of 80s, when I was sort of active, Mm. we were terrible. (laughs) We were absolutely terrible. 
<laughs> Did you ever have like a heckler or any one of those like terribly horrifying? I feel like that's a swear word. But did you ever have anyone screaming back at you something when you first started? Of course I did. No, of really? course I did. What were they screaming? Yes. Oh my god. Oh, get your tits out! You know, <gasps> shut up! You know, no. fuck you! You're stupid. I, I oh mean, my... a million and one stupid shit. <gasps> I, it really is like water off my mm. off a duck's back with mm. me, though. It's like I'm used to getting shouted at. So, but I mean, do you, you don't still get shouted at? Not now, surely not. Sometimes, if you're in a sort of inadvertent commas hostile environment, like you know, a festival, a big festival. Yeah. Or, okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, but again, it just doesn't really bother me. I, I just feel like okay, you can't possibly walk on stage and expect everybody in this massive festival site to give a shit. Nor can you expect them to know who you are, nor mm. can you expect them to be respectful. You mm. have to get down into the dirt and hope that you can curry some favor with them mm. so that they don't destroy you, you know, mm. because as I go, I go back to this whole thing about people have the power. You know, a festival crowd is, that is a unwieldy beast to to preside over at times, you know, they, they can destroy you in a nanosecond, mm. you know, and I've had shit thrown at me. I've had like, you know, oh litre bottles of water in my face, you know, I mean, you've got, I've got, I've had projectile, you know, no. spit. No. Yes, of course I have. No, I can't Every even handle woman. any of this. My, like my heart is thumping really <laughs> fast. I'm sorry. This is Holy awful. Yeah. I mean, I can, I didn't, I could never imagine this. <laughs> <laughs> can you hear oh. like breathing really heavy i need my asthma pump yeah, where funny. is my asthma pump but i mean obviously you you hit the nail on the head seriously festivals and i can only speak on the other side i'm on the totally other side from you i'm in the pit taking photos watching you and i get stuff thrown at me i can't even imagine how much shit you've had to deal with over the years especially as you said at a festival where people aren't only there to see you you might be the, you know, the person that they're seeing just because their friend told them that they're seeing you. So you you can never guarantee why a person is standing in front of that stage. It's it's fascinating, no, really. Not. I was just firstly dumbfounded that you've been projectile spat on. <laughs> <laughs> Did you spit back? I hope you spat back. Or do, what do you do? Do you just ignore it? Or how do you deal with that? It depends, you know, it depends on your mood. Like sometimes, you know, if, you know, if you're on your period for a random example, yes. things might get a little uh, confrontational. Okay, but, you know, other hairy. times I would, I, yeah, and, and other times I would genuinely find it mildly amusing, you know, because mm. there is something mildly amusing about annoying somebody, mm. <laughs> you know, Um and, and a lot of the time, though, I try and be respectful. I understand that you've paid a, a festival ticket and you've jostled yourself into a position where you can see your favourite band and they have to sit through maybe us and another opener before their band of choice comes on. You know, mm. I understand you get frustrated and bored and like, get the fuck off here. You know, you're boring the shit out of me or whatever. I get it. Mm. So I just try and like be humorous about it where possible. And then if it gets dangerous, then... Sometimes I I get really spiteful. Mm. And the thing is, what is really peculiar, and again, it goes back to being a witch, yeah. is that people have often said to me, how did you find that one person who was spitting at you <laughs> or throwing beer at you? 
out of a crowd of thousands. How do you do it? Imagine. And I don't know how I do it, yeah. but Hicks, sometimes you're just like, you just, yeah, you just have this thing, yeah, where you can just scan a crowd and usually it takes about three scans and then you zoom in on the person and you know it's like you or it's someone in your vicinity. You sound just as much as a, of a cyborg and, you know, like you're scanning the crowd as much of a witch. Oh, no. I think that that's amazing. You definitely have yeah. superpowers. But I mean, I, 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 like, I, to, I totally get what you're saying about like accepting like, right okay people can act how they want to but I feel like there's always been a lot of attention given to the horror stories that women experience at festivals and not only women LGBTQ community I've spoken to so many people that in that live setting it's been an issue forever and obviously it's starting to gain more mainstream in terms of making a change, a lot of bands will grab that mic, stop the show and say, listen, you're trampling on people. This is not a mosh pit. You know, the mosh pit doesn't need to be deadly. Can you stop? And I've seen a lot of bands taking action. But how important is it for live music to be that safe space for people? You know, that safe haven where they can really feel like not scared that they're going to lose an eye from somebody, you know, roundhouse kicking in a mosh pit, you know? Well, well, to me, here's the deal. Going anywhere where there are massive amounts of people is not a safe space. Mm. End of story. So if you're looking for a safe space, do not come to a show. Mm. That's how I see it. It's like you make your, cha- you know, you make your choices, you take your chances, you turn up where there is an assembly of people and you're already putting yourself at risk. That's how I see it. Now, to me, there's benefits to doing so that outweigh the risks. Mm. But, you know, that's how you have to choose to live your life. Am I going to be like always walking between the lines and, and remain between the margins? Or am I going to like stretch out a little and, and, and allow something exceptional to happen to me? But there's mm. always risks involved, you know. And I, I have to say, you know, I get a little tired of, Well, first of all, I have to say, I always think of the audience safety. If I see anything that I think is unsafe, I will Mm. always jump in and make sure that we all police ourselves. Again, the people have the power. I I plead to the people to make sure they're policing themselves. Mm. That's their choice. And and basically, the power is in their hands. And certainly, God, thank God, up until this point, nothing really terrible has happened under our watch. That's not to say it won't. And I feel so dreadful for the bands where things happen during their shows. It's it's so disquieting and upsetting and disturbing and so on. But Mm. at the same time, you get into a cage with a tiger. Do not be surprised when the tiger acts like a tiger. And Mm. so... I feel like when anybody's pleading for a safe space at a gig, it's like, you know what, darling, this is not your playground. You should go home. Mm. This is not mm. for you. Because mm. you, can't, you can't expect every experience in life to be perfect, you know. And shit happens, you know. That's just, unfortunately, what life is. Mm. It's, it's risky and we, we live in a world with each other. And mostly we, ha- we enjoy the benefits of other people but sometimes unfortunately we'll run into a nutter and there's not much we can do about that and it's awful you mm. know the other thing that drives me mad is the dictatorship that occurs from the front like from the stage mm. towards the fans you know telling them they can do this they can't do that they need to leave their phones behind they can't use their iPads right. that drives me mad because ultimately I feel like didn't we all grow up wanting freedom? Isn't that why we fell in love with alternative music in the first place? Mm-hmm. You know, didn't we all want 
to, didn't we all gravitate towards the music we gravitated to because it was an alternative to the rules and regulations and, and sort of the polite structures that we railed against at, at school? I mean, mm. so then all of a sudden you've got all these lead singers saying, you can't do this, you can't do that, you must not, during my great show, dare to speak. <laughs> be quiet. There must speaking. be silence. <laughs> yeah. This conversation, you know, that drives me crazy. It's like, mm. what the fuck? This is like school. Mm. And you, what I the mean, that? you come from the fold, the ro- that kind of alternative rock fold where anything goes in, in, in essence that people will always go too far. Right. I think that that's like across the board. People will always go too far, yeah. but that's I do, a given. that's a given. <laughs> exactly. So if you know that that's the base level, then you, you've got a lot to work with. Right. Yeah. Um, I know that you went through a bit of a difficult time in terms of your, vocal that I know that you we spoke about it last time uh, after your voice went out at Roskilde which was Mm. one of those crazy festivals that was I mean I saw projectile everything what (laughs) I will not say it live on air but you know that that's that's an intense festival but Obviously, yeah. what was the first reaction? Well, my heart broke because Roskilde was the first major fest- festival I'd ever played at, actually with my former band, Goodbye Mr. McKenzie. Long before I came and played with with Garbage, I'd oh. played there with Goodbye Mr. McKenzie. So okay. I had a lot of fondness for it. And um, we had played it a couple of times as Garbage. And then we came back really triumphant to headline. And I had no voice and... As it turns out, I had vocal nodes, but I didn't know that at the time. And I opened my mouth to sing the first song and no voice came out. And Oh, my gosh. Uh, it was really stressful and upsetting. I felt like I was letting my whole band down, but I also felt I'd let all the fans down and the festival organisers down, you know, because mm-hmm. they had put a lot of faith in us. And, yeah, my heart was breaking. And then the audience all started to sing along and my voice began to warm up and I've eventually found a voice. So I was able to finish the concert, but it was an extraordinary moment of allowing myself to fail and be carried along by the crowd, by the people. I really felt the brotherhood, you know, the sisterhood. Yeah. It was really moving. I was really moved by the power of it, you know, and hearing all these people sing and, and helping me out, you know, Mm. I just, it was, it was really a, a moment for me. And how are you? How are you now? What happened? It, was that something that like could? Be... I am tip top. Na- I'm tip top, Leor. <laughs> I mean, you're a witch. Of course you are. Of course yes. you are. But I mean, yeah. so I know that we probably have to wrap up soon. But I know that you mentioned Joe Strummer earlier, and like seeing Bjork in the street, which just I can't even really believe. I like stopped breathing when I saw Bjork. Um, but Aww. all you've also collaborated and performed with, you know, like everyone from Iggy Pop to, you know, Kings of Leon. And most recently, I know that you performed with Fiona. And what does that kind of shared artistic experience offer you? How do you really, especially collaborating with bands that inspire you? Um, as we spoke about earlier, but seeing them live and performing, you know, before or after these bands, how how has that kind of informed your artistic self? Well, you know, that's a big question. To be honest, 
to be part of the music community, to be a member of the musical community is without doubt the biggest magic in my life. I, I, I actually cannot believe this happened to me in my lifetime um, and that I could walk into a room and a lot of these incredible artists that you just mentioned would know mm. who I was. I mean, that makes me literally want to burst into tears. Mm. Um, it's been extraordinary. And there have been times in my career when I have not been the critic's darling, far from it. We fell out of favour in the mid-2000s and the, and the critics were pretty brutal with us. And it was a, mo- it was a time in my life that was incredibly challenging. And I was miserable, if the truth be told. It made me almost sick. Mm. And it was the artists who reminded me, every time I'd bump into them, who would remind me of what my job was, which was to make music and never lose sight of that. And there are a, a glut of incredibly brilliant artists who have given me private words that have sustained me through years of being out in the desert critically and musically. Mm. Um, And so I am so grateful to them all because it allowed me to have a little faith in myself when, you know, the press, particularly actually in the UK, Mm. were telling me I was, I was basically a piece of shit. And, wow. you know, when somebody brilliant that you really admire tells you you're really good at what you do, do mm-hmm. not give up, then there's always that sort of little fire. It's like getting your fire stoked, you know, mm-hmm. for it doesn't last for all eternity. But in that moment, it sort of keeps you burning. And mm-hmm. so that has been my experience is that the greats that I have been privileged enough to spend time with are so generous because they understand how difficult it is. You know, it's not mm-hmm. easy. It's, it is easy to have a successful single. It's even, one could argue, it's easy to have a successful record. Mm. It is not easy to sustain a career in, in music. It's really difficult. And the older you get, the more tired the public are of you because mm. you've been around so long. It gets <laughs> even more challenging. Yeah. And that's, you know, it's not for the, as I always say, it's just not for the faint of heart. It's not for the fragile. But let's, so I wanted to talk to you more a little bit about performing um, because obviously you've changed and shifted over the years. Like just thinking now, do you feel like you are better at it now and, you know, better at what you do now than you've ever been? Not really. I feel like I'm really different now. Mm. And I feel like each passage is, not comparable to the next you know you develop as a human being you your experience and perspective shift um so when i first started out by by just accident i mean i look at old footage now and i think oh i can see why people were into me when i was really when i just started out i'm so (laughs) sort of introverted and sulky and you didn't really get very much Mm. and and i could and i was cool you know, I looked cool, I acted cool, I was cool. I was so scared, you know, mm. that I was cool. And now, you know, I've, I'm a completely different performer because I'm not scared. And I'm actually, I have, cha- I have deliberately changed how I look at my life because I was going to drown if I didn't. So now I kind of inject my life with joy where I can and so when I'm on stage I'm not trying to be cool I'm not trying to uh, hide 
um, and I don't feel uncomfortable. I'm actually really joyful. I love what I do and I love people and I want I want to be there in service mm. of them. So it's just an entirely different uh, approach now. I would I haven't done it, but if I were to like type into Twitter now, like Shirley Manson or something, people are, they're always saying the best things as well. Like I, not always, of course, because people it's a dark pit of hell sometimes. Twitter and the internet, <laughs> but you know people do they feel very connected to you, and you are that certain type of musician where I can only imagine people probably come up to you and feel like they know you. Or do you feel like they stand there kind of a little bit dumbfounded how you would be toward your idol? How approachable, How do, do people approach you easily? Or do you find that you have to kind of like be, hey, I'm normal, I'm a human, come give me a hug? Like how how is that interaction? All of the above, to be honest. I get mm. all different responses. I mean, I think it's really cute when, you know, I might... I might be greeted by a young girl who calls me Cheryl. It's like, hi, Cheryl, as if she's like my really good buddy. And I really think it's sweet. Like, I've, I find it really sweet. Um, and I try to be as approachable as possible. But I also will meet fans who just burst into tears, you know. And, and, mm. and I really relate to that because when I meet people that really mean a lot to me, I tend to <laughs> feel the tears spurt. You know, mm-hmm. when I met Patty Smith, I, I burst into tears and it was really embarrassing and, and unexpected. And I didn't even feel the tears arrive. They just were there. Wow. You know, you, sometimes you can anticipate tears, you know, you can feel them coming up. But th- in this case, I just looked at her and uh, tears started flowing down my face. So wow. um, I'm always sort of amazed by the different kinds of approaches and, and responses that, you know, we as a band enjoy. Um but I do my best to honour that because I understand that connection. I understand what it feels like to see someone in the flesh when they've just been an abstract idea. Mm-hmm. And to talk about the you on tour, because I know that you, you know, you mention your age and like you don't act your age. I feel like age is like a non, it's, it's, I feel like you share the wisdom of someone you know, who's had life experience, but I certainly don't see you as a certain age, if that makes sense. Um, probably back down to the idea of being a witch. But what um, <laughs> what do you, like, how are you on tour now? You know, you're going to be going on tour in a few months. Like, because back then, I can imagine there were the tour buses and the constant flights and the lack of sleep and I mean, I'm not sure what you ate on tour or any of those little weird things, but how are you now? (laughs) (laughs) You know, like, how are you now on tour as opposed to how you were back when you were at service and needing to tour constantly, you know, with every single album? How, How has that shifted? Well, it's not as mad as it once was. I mean, I used to to bring a treadmill on tour with me and my poor crew used to have to... Yeah, my poor crew would lumber this thing around and it weighed like, I don't know what it weighed, but it weighed a ton. And all of that kind of stuff has fallen by the wayside because I'm much more relaxed about my physicality on stage. I don't feel like I have to look like a supermodel. For a moment back there, I I felt like if I wasn't muscly and skinny, Mm. people would 
point at me and laugh at me and say cruel things about me. I mean, I was demented mm. and, I, and I drove myself really hard. I'm much more forgiving of myself now and uh, I've, I've stopped giving a fuck as much, you know. My body doesn't look as good, but my, my soul feels better. <laughs> and oh my, my God, crew, I want that on a T-shirt. I need that on a T-shirt. Uh, <laughs> and my crew are much happier with me than, than my previous lot who had to like deal with that. But... Mm. You know, I love touring. I'm not like a lot of others who find touring difficult. I was really smart. I fell in love with one of our crews, so I married him in the end. And so he's always no. with me. For, yeah. Oh, my gosh. That is am- I didn't know that. Oh, that's amazing. Okay. <laughs> yeah, so he, see, so he travels with me still to this day. So, of course, touring is really pleasant. It's basically going on holiday. You just go. You got your from, bite. Yeah. You got I got everything there. I need. Yeah. Yeah. And that safety yeah, so. and knowing that there's somebody always looking out for you. Um, well, I don't know about that. <laughs> <laughs> he's much more interested in making sure the computers are okay than me. But there you have it. <laughs> I bet you he's happy that you're not lagging around a treadmill. I'm sure that he's really happy. He doesn't need to handle that. But that's, exactly. When did you meet? When did you meet your husband? What, were you on tour at the time, or had you met him and then kind of got reintroduced along no, you know, we, over the years? No, we hired him. We hired him and we very, very slowly, and I'm talking like years and years and years and mm. years, fell in love. But it took a long time. That's really beautiful. I met my husband uh, working as well. I feel like there's this really beautiful world that happens between two people who have that shared experience. Not to say yeah, other definitely. relationships don't work because they haven't met each other through work, um, but it's certainly a beautiful a beautiful it helps right absolutely it definitely yeah. especially because you were the only woman i'm sure did you have any other woman traveling with you when you were touring not really wow yeah. that must have been kind tough. Of mad. yeah yeah it was tough but you know i like tough tough is good you learn when things are when you learn when things are tough mm, mm, absolutely yeah. and now obviously it looks totally different i can imagine your crew is built up you know, with people, do do you still use the same crew that you did back in the day? No, we haven't, unfortunately. I mean, we, we have a long, loyal crew that tends to do a turnover every sort of five or six years. People move on, you know, they have families, they have wives or girlfriends and their their desires change. So they move on. Mm-hmm. But we've we've always try to pick our crew really carefully we love them dearly you you know we've never any asshole we get rid of so Mm. we always have amazing people working with us is it as effective as they say like people even speak about i know people have spoken about in the past like even down to the bus driver and down to the you know any port any person part of the crew can really affect your performance and your life while on the road Oh, God, yeah. Mm. Yeah, 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 definitely. I mean, it's really, there's a lot of pieces that you need to put together in order to have a well-functioning tour. And if, yeah, if you have one piece of that puzzle who turns out to be a bit of a problem, you you really, you're in, there's a massive scramble to to attend to that problem. Is there something right now that you are particularly excited or joyful about you know like it doesn't have to be you specific but something in the world anything you something you feel particularly positive and excited about that is a really interesting question because actually the things that I am 
passionate about, which is different from being excited. The things yes. I'm passionate about are actually things that basically I perceive as problems that I have become passionate about that I really wanted to attend to, like to put my 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 energies to. Mm. Um, I mean, I've always fought on behalf of my fellow woman. I really have always been very vocal about women's rights and so on and so forth. But lately, over the last sort of couple of years, I've become woefully um, mortified at the at my lack of awareness of my own white privilege. And I am so determined to try and become a really great ally to my, you know, to women of color, to black women, to really like put my energies towards trying to attend to the uh, the lack of balance in in female sort of or female identifying uh, orders, mm, you know, it, it, uh, the, the 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 lack of uh, equality is is shocking to me, and I wasn't really aware of that. I was I'd never really aware of my own white privilege until somebody pointed it out to me. And ever since then, I was so embarrassed and so ashamed of myself and so determined to try and be an ally and be a better ally, be a determined ally towards women of colour and, and, and black women in particular. You know, I, it, it's something I, it's just like a, I feel like a fire's in me, like I'm trying to educate myself, read as much about race relations as possible and really mm-hmm. try and and change my own sort of attitudes as a, as a white privileged female mm, especially That's with the platform what mm, yeah with it's the probably what i'm most have. passionate about yeah. Wow, that's really so wonderful. Ignorant. Thank you. <laughs> I mean, that's what we all are. Like, even I grew up in South Africa with eleven different languages and felt my whole life that I was surrounded and felt like I knew exactly. You know, I felt really grounded in it, like not ignorant at all. And to be honest, there's so many things that anyone, there's so many people do, and you don't even realize it. And that that sense of loss. And, you know, not being able to understand other people well and putting yourself first, uh, having that privilege is essentially is within everybody in, in some yeah. way. Um, and it's it's really, really it's terrifying to hear anyone feeling at a loss that they are going through that. But especially with you on a platform, the fact that you're learning and want to be better at it is how much more can you ask? You know, that, that is the quintessential um, human want that we change and learn and grow, you know. But then the answer always comes back the same. You can, every, everybody will always ask for more. Mm. Yep. <laughs> I mean, I've taken extra minutes of your time today, so I know, I know what that oh. feels like. But thank oh, you so Leon. much. Yeah, it's been really, as always, you are just a, a dream to get to know. And I thank you for opening your your brain and your heart so I can uh, get to see a little bit more of it. I hope you have and a good, good luck break. To you. Thank you. Good luck with the podcast. Welcome back and goodbye. 
Thank you so much for tuning in. That conversation was just amazing. I absolutely loved it. She is uh, she makes you proud to to get a insider view of the world and the industry. And don't forget to go to garbage.com for all of their tour dates and also buy their new reissue. It is amazing. Version 2.0. It has loads of B-sides. And also follow them on Twitter. Follow them on Instagram. Follow them on Facebook. Don't follow them in real life. um, Unless they have asked you to, which I highly doubt that is the case. Yeah, like if you're a roadie or something, you should should continue following them around on tour. If they've asked you to follow them because they're showing you where to go down the street, go for it. Oh, yeah, like directions. Like, hey, follow me. It's this way. Follow me. Heidi ho ho. That's what people say when they're... Anyway, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast and rate it and also write a review, please. It helps other people find us and it helps us know that you are out there. And breathing and living because I want to know you. And uh, if you have nothing to say, write something down on a piece of paper, fold it up like a paper airplane, and. Also, follow us and all the other shows that Consequence Podcast Network have. They're doing some amazing things. Follow them on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. And you can follow me, too, on uh, at Leor Phillips. I nearly forgot my name again. This is the strange experience for getting names. It's not even an age thing. I think it's just like, who am I? Maybe it's an existential question (laughs) every time I need to say my name. Um... You can also follow the podcast, most importantly, before you follow me, at TMBTGPod. Um, and also, I would love to say a huge shout out to Billy Yost and the Kickback for their use of their excellent song, Rube, which we use for our theme song. So if you were wondering, listening to that theme song, going, what? That sounds amazing. Um, that's Billy Yost and his band, The Kickback. And you can follow them at thekickbackband.com and another special thank you to my friends back home in South Africa Dean Berger and Daniel Breiter you have created such beautiful soundscapes for me to use in the podcast as well also to Lexi Frame for the brilliant logo design thank you to Cap and Mike and Alex and the whole Consequence Podcast Network team you guys are amazing I love you And uh, tune in next week. We're going to be chatting about some newsy things. Uh, Coachella. That's how you say it, right? That's how how the cool kids are saying it these days. What what is cool? Coachella. Coachella. Um, If you want to pronounce it like that, you are more than welcome. I miss you already. Bye. Goodbye. Consequence Podcast Network.